started. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. O Lord, make us worthy to pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, now our third meeting on the Acts of the Apostles. On uh, June 9th, we covered a brief introduction and kind of looked at chapter one as well. Uh, we talked about the purpose of the book of Acts, and uh, that purpose is really the demonstration that the resurrection of Christ is a historical fact, and that demonstration came through the work of the apostles, or rather, we should say, the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles with their uh, amazing actions and deeds, with their uh, miracles that, the, that they perform with the, with the work of the Holy Spirit, but most importantly, with the love that they showed and the care for the early church. And we're going to get a glimpse of that today as we start seeing now the labors of St. Paul and uh, the amazing things that he did. And uh, on June 16th, we talked about that early life of the church. And we talked about how the church started with the Pentecost, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believers, because that is the definition of the church when it comes down to it, is the Holy Spirit dwelling in the lives of the uh, believers being the new temple that came out of Jerusalem. The temple is each of the believers' hearts, and that temple was distributed around the world and went to uh, every corner of the earth, uh, the civilized earth at that time. And But we ended, of course, uh, with what seemed to be a very sad scene, right, which is the martyrdom of St. Stephen, uh, the, the first deacon and the first uh, martyr of the early church. And we look at that and we say, well, you know, that's an amazing uh, scene that we saw, that he saw heavens opened up and that they stoned him to death. And consenting to that uh, event was uh, a man named Saul. And that man named Saul, he basically carried the, the jackets and the, and the coats of all the people that needed to have better mobility as they threw the stones. And um, he consented to the death of St. Stephen. And that's where our story picks up today. Um, today, uh, what we'll do is a little bit different than last week because uh, uh, I asked people to read the, this time. So hopefully everyone read. So what we'll do is we'll go through a synopsis of each of the chapters, uh, chapters 8 through 14. And then we'll talk a little bit about St. Paul uh, himself. Uh, because he is now, uh, you know, the, the focus is now shifting from the works of the apostles and um, uh, St. Peter to the focus being on St. Paul, seeing that, of course, St. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, um, and he was a disciple of St. Paul. So um, we'll talk a little bit about the character of St. Paul and uh, who he was in his efforts. So we'll start with chapter 8. So we, as we left off last time, uh, St. Stephen was now martyred, and after the martyrdom of St. Stephen, a great persecution happened on the church. And um, this person named Saul, who was a Pharisee, who learned under Gamaliel, uh, one of the uh, chief educators of the Pharisees, um, he was, in his own words, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And he was one of the leaders of this persecution. He got papers from the high priest to go and to seek out every Christian from their homes, and put them under arrest with the intent of actually executing them. 
Um, and it says that this person, Saul, was wreaking havoc on the churches. This young church that was starting to get off the ground is now being persecuted severely by uh, the Jewish authorities at the time. Um, so as a consequence of that, since the church started in Jerusalem, and as prophesied about by Christ, all of the believers uh, fleeing this persecution went to the north in the areas of Judea and Samaria. And so we, today we're going to see a lot of the stories happen, uh, benchmarking from these areas. Uh, and as we know later on, too, that they spread even beyond these areas to the rest of the world. So when the apostles knew that the people in Samaria believed, and they started believing at the uh, teaching of St. Philip, they sent Peter and John. And I capitalized there, they, because uh, it's just another example and the hint of how the apostles work together in such harmony. Uh, if you recall earlier in their uh, walking with Christ during his three-year ministry, they would often debate among themselves of who would be first, who is the first. And, and they would argue about uh, getting the first seat of prominence and that the, they could sit next to Christ, one on his right hand and one on his left. Uh, they didn't know what they were asking. But now that they've received the Holy Spirit and have a better understanding of things, uh, they acted in such unity. We don't hear of any conflicts among themselves. They work together in perfect uh, love and uh, support for one another, praying for one another. Um, so when the apostles knew that the people in Samaria began to believe, they got together and they sent Peter and John. It doesn't say that Peter decided to go unilaterally, but they sent Peter and John to go support Philip and the uh, services in Samaria. There we get a story of um, Simon the sorcerer. So we have this person named Simon who um, was a sorcerer and he was one of the people who eventually believed and um, received the Holy Spirit. But he was so intrigued by the workings of the miracles and especially the receiving of the Holy Spirit that in his mind, he thought he can approach St. Peter and, uh, and ask for this gift of being able to give the Holy Spirit to others. And he offered money in return for this, right? And so thus began the concept of uh, a word that is your vocabulary word for the day of simony. Uh, this concept of people buying the priesthood with their own money, right? So that if they're rich and they want the honor of a priesthood, why somebody would want that honor is nothing but hard work. <laughs> but if somebody wanted to buy it um, and uh, so they would give money and then return get uh, the priesthood so that kind of uh, evil habit uh, was from the very beginning and uh, that became uh, something that the church has strongly set up defenses for uh, that concept of simony uh, of somebody purchasing uh, the position of priesthood as if somebody could purchase that uh, that role so now if you hear about it you know where it comes from this guy simon Chapter 8 continues with uh, Philip converting and baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. One of the more intriguing stories of the uh, book of Acts. Uh, we have here um, that a, a eunuch of great authority under, the, under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. So about the year 35 AD, this great eunuch uh, who had great authority, some scholars uh, believe that maybe he was the treasurer, of uh, the country of Ethiopia and worked directly for the queen. 
but he's a great mystery. Um, really interesting story with him. Who was he? Was he Jewish? Was he there for the Pentecost? Um, we don't know exactly, or, you know, this happened a couple years later. So was he there on one of the pilgrimage? Uh, we don't know why he was there. Was he there trading? Maybe he was trading with Israel. We know that there was trade routes with the country of Israel back then. So we, we don't know. So was he Jewish? Maybe he was a descendant of Queen Sheba. So Queen Sheba uh, had a relationship with Solomon uh, about a thousand years before. And... Uh, um, that kings have actually, it's one of the more, uh, if not the longest, one of the longest uh, royal um, uh, families uh, dating back to 1000 BC. And it continued on up until recently where Haile Selassie was killed in the year 1974. If you ever heard about who Haile Selassie was, he was a good friend of um, uh, uh, Pope Carolus. You, you see a lot of pictures with him. And he was the last emperor of Ethiopia. He was killed. Uh, believed by the communists at the time. And so Haile Selassie, by the way, if you know the uh, Jamaican Rastafarians, they love Haile Selassie. I think they even worship him, um, literally. And so um, this 3,000-year span of the royal, uh, uh, royal family uh, ended in 1974. So what was this person? Was he maybe one of those people? So he was part Jewish, uh, being one, uh, like one of the sons of Solomon from way back, maybe he was there on a pilgrimage, um, or was he uh, the first Gentile, right? Maybe he wasn't Jewish and he was just the first Gentile who, who was baptized. And so, you know, either way, you know, that would make him the first Gentile even before Cornelius, which we'll talk about later, um, to, be, uh, to be baptized and to bring uh, Christianity to the Gentiles. So either way, it's very significant and very mysterious uh, on who this was. There's a lot of traditions that say that he brought Christianity to Ethiopia. And later on, that Christianity was cemented by uh, our 20th Pope, uh, St. Athanasius, who was established bishops and, uh, and priests there uh, to, uh, and brought it like within the family of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And so um, very interesting character, very intriguing. A lot of traditions uh, talk about him. You can Google him and, and see different opinions on it, um, but uh, very interesting. Uh, I was talking to one of our uh, servants at our church. His name's Lekun, and he was telling me and educating me about the uh, various uh, you know, traditions in the Ethiopian and Eritrean culture about, uh, about this uh, mysterious uh, eunuch from Ethiopia. Then uh, we look at chapter nine. Um, Saul is continuing to, as it says in the book of Acts, to breathe threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he was very um, zealous and he believed that he was doing the work of God. And we often find this in religion, right? We often find, we often find that people numb their conscience their conscience becomes numbed because they believe that they are in the right, whether it's religion or some kind of moral belief or even some kind of other kind of uh, doctrine that they believe in. That doctrine leads them to numb the conscience against anyone else who has a differing opinion. We've seen it recently. We've seen it with uh, even moral issues, social issues that we've seen recently uh, with the riots that are going on, for example. If anyone has a differing opinion, they think they understand everything, and so that numbs their conscience to the other side uh, of somebody else who has a different opinion. 
Uh, same thing with religion. Religion does that on occasion. Uh, you'll find religions that will numb the conscience to, uh, for them to do all sorts of atrocities and, and to not only say really evil things against them, but to uh, do many evil things, even to the point of murder, like in the case of uh, today. So, um, you know, but even, even within like our, you know, our faith is that when we numb our conscience because we know that we're in the right on things, but it's true religion that complements the conscience, that enhances the conscience towards others, that enhances love. But the moment we feel like our conscience is numbed and slowed towards other people, then we know maybe we've taken a wrong turn in our religion. But if our religion is that that heightens the sense of our conscience, that gives us a greater love for others, even those who are not part of the body of Christ, then we know we're truly practicing our faith. Our faith enhances the conscience, it doesn't numb the conscience. But unfortunately with Saul, in his case, he began to breathe threats and murder upon the disciples of the Lord. So one day, and you all know the story, of course, and I'm sure you've all read it. Uh, they were traveling along the way and journeyed towards Damascus. And St. Paul encounters this great light, and Christ himself appears to him. He's confused. He's knocked off of his horse. Uh, the people around him aren't able to see what he sees. Um, but the words are, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why does he say me instead of my disciples or my believers? It's because of the close and intimate relationship he has with the early church and with the believers and even with us. We are his body. We are the body of Christ. Not in some symbolic way that we are the body of Christ, but we are a literal body of Christ. And what gives us that ability to say we are the body of Christ? Firstly, we are baptized and we receive the Holy Spirit inside of us through the chrismation, and also through the Eucharist that we partake of. We partake of the body of Christ, and that body of Christ becomes our part of our body as well. So we literally become one body of Christ. And so when somebody persecutes us, it is because they're really persecuting Christ. And because we are part of his body, that persecution falls on us. And even so, let it fall on us. Uh, for anything that goes against our Lord, it's fallen on us. And we willingly as Christians bear this, right? Because of our love for our Lord. Immediately he begins, though, we see his zeal, his love for God, that as soon as he converts, he immediately begins preaching, uh, as the book of Acts says. And we're going to talk more about his uh, efforts as we progress. So St. Peter, also in chapter 9, St. Peter does an amazing miracle. He raises Tabitha from the dead at Joppa. So we're seeing every, every other verse that the Holy Spirit's active, doing great wonders, strange miracles, even raising people from the dead and healings and, and other types of uh, miracles that we're going to talk about. We know that our faith is not built on miracles. Our faith is built on faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that the Holy Spirit, there's nothing impossible for the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit is indeed active. And we see it in the lives of the saints uh, on a daily basis, especially in our church. Thank God. And so here we see St. Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Um, as Christ promised that he said, the works that I do, you shall do, and even greater works because I go to the Father and I send of course, if he goes to the Father, he sends us the Holy Spirit to work in our life. 
And so we see, even raising people from the dead, we, we read in our Senexarium that many of the church fathers uh, and mothers in the, in the writings of the Senexarium, we see uh, even that great miracle of raising people from the dead, we see it in our church history. Then we move on to chapter 10. So St. Peter, and this is a really, really important chapter. Um, this is a chapter that one should pay attention to as well as the other chapters too. Uh, but St. Peter sees in a vision, uh, a vision proclaiming the acceptance of the Gentiles. And we see that um, he sees a vision of all sorts of different types of animals and the, the vision tells him to eat. And he says, not so Lord, cause I'm not gonna eat anything unclean. And then the, the vision tells him, don't call what God has created unclean. And so he uh, understands immediately that this is, and this happens three times, and that he understands that this is a vision proclaiming that um, the Gentiles now would receive the Holy Spirit and become part of the body of Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament. And now St. Peter is starting to understand this immediately after this vision. Uh, he sees Cornelius uh, and he meets with him and Cornelius falls down at the feet of St. Peter and begins to worship him. St. Peter, of course, is not going to take that. He corrects him, raises him back up again and, um, and puts, him in, uh, you know, puts him on the right path. He's, God has shown me that I should not call any man, any man common or unclean. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality as St. Peter says. This is, it may seem like, of course, you know, it's, it totally makes sense, but for the early Jews, this was a huge deal to now uh, have dealings with the Gentiles and not only have dealings with them, but to count them as equals and to show them no partiality and that they would become their brothers and part of the body of Christ and part of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit falls on the household of Cornelius and St. Peter baptizes them. <clears throat> the impact of this caused a great, um, great uh, scandal, if you want to call it that, um, as we'll read about in chapter 11. St. Peter is challenged by the Jewish Christians, right? But he talks to them about the vision and he talks to them about what happened and the Holy Spirit acting um, and um, falling on them and, and dwelling inside of them, just like he did with all the Jewish early believers. So they believe it, that it's God's will, and they, um, the, but the issue continues. It continues throughout the New Testament era in the early church. And it is what leads to the first heresy of the church. And when you um, read the epistles of St. Um, uh, you know, Paul, and even the early believers after the apostles, the apostolic fathers, they talk about this and this uh, heresy of Judaizing heresy, right? That you have to become Jewish first before you become Christian. So you have to still practice all the things of the law and uh, like circumcision, like all the sacrifices and all these other things. Um, and you have to do all these things. And then you also gain the, the blessings of baptism. Uh, it was so embedded in the early believers that how can you, follow God and not follow the law of the Old Testament. And when we talk about the law, we're talking about the laws that point to the things that Christ would do. How can you let go of these things? It caused a great internal struggle, and that struggle continued on um, in the early church. 
But the church continued to grow outside of Jerusalem and among the Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? They are Jewish believers, right? They're Jewish people that, if you recall in the Old Testament, uh, they were scattered um, and they lived in the, the diaspora. Uh, not all of them came back to Israel, so they all spoke the, Jew the, the language of the era, which was Greek, and uh, they were called the Hellenists, right? And so a lot of Hellenists that, uh, that lived in Alexandria especially, but also in Greece and other parts of the Greek-speaking world, uh, they would come to Israel on pilgrimage or to observe certain feasts like the Pentecost, for example. Um, they, uh, they start to grow uh, among these people. So the apostles would go and preach to them as well in other parts like in Antioch and in other locations throughout the world. And they also, uh, a lot of them accept Christianity along with the pagans. Uh, they convert and uh, the Gentiles become Christian as well. So the church, even under all these pressures, internal and external, continues to grow. So chapter 12 comes, right? And Herod the king continues the persecution. He's kind of heading this persecution of this early church. So he kills St. James, right? The brother of St. John. And he imprisons St. Peter. And St. Peter appears to St. Uh, I'm sorry, an angel appears to St. Peter in jail. And what I find comical is that he appears appears in a great light so that the cell was full of light and St. Peter is there in a cell fast asleep so far into sleep that the, it says that the angel had to knock him on his side to wake him up and so it just shows you the peace that and joy that St. Peter had and uh, we get a glimpse of that in St. Paul as well that the angel had to knock him like on the side to wake him up and said hurry up get out of jail let's go and he opened the jails for him and he escapes and goes to, of all people, St. Mark's house. Um, he goes there and he, uh, you know, stays with the believers there. Um, Herod gets his though. Herod, uh, we find that he was, uh, you know, speaking uh, in front of people and he, a lot of people uh, counted him like, like the voice of uh, God, not as a man. He falls right there on the spot and it really gross, right? Um, a bunch of worms come out of him, right? And he dies this gross death. Uh, we find uh, these, these kind of things happen to the people of extreme evil. Um, they have this really gross death. Uh, a couple more come to mind where like Judas, for example, he burst asunder as he hung himself. Uh, we also know the story of Arius, the heretic. Uh, his death, uh, he died basically on a toilet, you know. And uh, so unfortunately, uh, you know, they don't repent till the last time and God uh, as a sign to everyone else uh, allows them to have this really kind of harsh death kind of thing. Um, anyways, the word of God continued to grow and multiplied as we said in uh, verse 24, chapter 12, verse 24. And as we say at the end of every Acts reading, the word of God shall grow, multiply, be confirmed and be mighty in the church of God. Amen. Saints Barnabas and Paul take with them St. Mark. And we all love St. Mark, of course, because we know what happens with St. Mark. He comes and starts our church. So we'll follow St. Mark a little bit as St. Barnabas and St. Paul uh, talk, take St. Mark with them on their journey, which starts in chapter 13. So we know St. Paul had four missionary journeys. Um, the first one started in chapter 13, so we can read it. Uh, and during this time, we see that the... Uh, there's this one uh, sorcerer named Elymas, 
and he um, was kind of pestering St. Paul and Barnabas. So St. Paul turns to him and, and rebukes him, and immediately the person became blind. And so um, that was a sign for him as well, as well as to everyone else, because he was well known in the area. Um, but they began to preach to both Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, and mostly in the synagogues. So they would go to the Jews first in these areas outside of uh, Israel, and they would preach to them. Most of the Jews, as it says in chapter 13, reject the words of St. Paul, although a few did accept it, um, and St. Barnabas, but the Gentiles receive it with joy because he basically said as, you know, as part of the prophecies that the Gentiles would now receive the faith and the Gentiles received that word with joy and they become um, Christians. So if you can take a picture of this with your phone, it will probably come in handy for you. So this is the first missionary journey as described by uh, chapter 13. Um, we look at how they start in Antioch. Okay. And we're going to follow um, St. Paul and St. Barnabas going through Antioch and with them, of course, is St. Mark until they get to Persia. Until when, when they get to Persia, uh, St. Mark leaves them and returns back to Jerusalem. Okay. The uh, St. Paul and St. Barnabas continue on the mission to uh, Derbia and then they return back. And there's some significance on them going back the same way they came and uh, they return back to Antioch. And we'll get to the other missionary journeys uh, in the next couple weeks as we progress uh, in the rest of the book of Acts. But since we're talking about St. Mark, St. Mark also did some journeys of his own. Um, so we know that he was born in Pentapolis, uh, which is Libya, and he leaves there after uh, his hometown was raided. Uh, he leaves there and he joins his uncle, St. Peter, and the rest of the family in Jerusalem. So uh, for sure, he was one of the 70 apostles. So he for sure witnessed a lot of the things that Christ did and said uh, during his three-year ministry, including the cross and the resurrection. He was there during the 40 days. Um, and then after that, he progressed with St. Paul and St. Barnabas, as we talked about, to Antioch, uh, and then went to Cyprus, which is Crete, and then went to Persia, which is in Asia Minor. But then afterwards, um, we don't know why, but he returns back to Jerusalem and leaves St. Paul with them. Uh, it did create a um, kind of harsh feelings with St. Paul, as we read about later. We'll read about that uh, later on. But... Um, Anyway, St. Mark uh, departed from them and went back to Jerusalem. Later on, him and Barnabas um, traveled to Crete and then back to Pentapolis. Okay, so St. Mark travels to Pentapolis, his hometown, and starts a church there. And then we hear the famous story of St. Mark that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, how St. Mark walked by foot along the Libyan coast all the way to Alexandria to the point where his sandals broke. And so he went to a cobbler. The cobbler was trying to fix the leather sandal with a needle, pierced his hand. St. Mark took it as an opportunity as he, uh, that person exclaimed, oh, one God, as he's, um, he pierces himself. So St. Mark um, took it as a sign 
and healed him right there on the spot. And Ananias, that person, the cobbler who is fixing the sandal, he becomes the second bishop of Alexandria, St. Mark, of course, being the first one. Um, after that, um, so he returns back to uh, Libya after the church started to grow and uh, his apostles uh, pushed him to travel from Alexandria because it wasn't safe for him to be there. So he returns back to Libya for a while. Um, and then he goes to Rome at the request of St. Paul. So we know that St. Paul and St. Mark made up again. Uh, so you can see there, there, even in the church, there could be conflict as long as the love still uh, remains in the hearts and then openness for reconciliation because we know that saint mark was summoned to rome by saint paul he said get mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me in the ministry so we know saint paul wrote the second epistle to timothy from a roman prison so he asked for saint mark to go with him in rome uh, tradition has it that uh, St. Mark stayed in Rome until St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred. He helped uh, secure the church there. And then he returns back to Alexandria on his final trip. There, of course, we, we hear that um, uh, he, he sees the church flourishing. A lot of people are converted. Uh, there's many churches, many priests now, and the bishops are everywhere. I mean, it was just amazing to see uh, that how, how big the church grew. And so, um, but eventually, uh, as the story goes on, people were so uh, jealous of him that, uh, you know, they eventually tie his uh, neck to a rope and the other end to a few horses. They drag him through the streets. Uh, he's bloodied. He's uh, barely hanging on for life. Uh, he's in jail. Archangel Michael appears to him, heals him. Then our Lord Jesus Christ uh, appears to him as well and lets him know that the next morning, that he would um, receive the crown of martyrdom. And so the next morning, uh, they did the same thing to him, but this time the, his head became severed from his body, and thus he received the crown of martyrdom. Just as a side note, uh, his body stayed in Alexandria for about a thousand years or so until stolen by the Venetians. Um, and then the Venetians uh, gave back um, so that stayed basically in Venice. I had the pleasure of visiting that church about 25 years ago or so. They have a beautiful church for St. Mark there uh, in St. Mark's Square in Venice. And uh, they built a huge shrine for him and they have his body there still. Um, but but uh, during the time of Pope Carolus, uh, a portion of his body was returned by the Roman Pope. Uh, to Alexandria, and we just celebrated that just a few days ago, too. Uh, that was a big, big deal in our church that some of the relics of St. Mark were returned back to Egypt. Um, although his head has always stayed in Egypt, the rest of his body was in Venice. So uh, St. Mark had a little missionary uh, trip as well, uh, but of course, when you compare with what St. Paul did, okay, St. Paul's missionary trip, uh, trips, I should say, um, covered over 10,000 miles, 10,000 miles um, uh, on foot, not in a nice air-conditioned vehicle, but on foot, on horseback, and on ships. Um, when you look at it, it is mind-boggling, I mean, during his life that he would do this uh, and accomplish this, uh, to the point where you think maybe he was flying or something, because this looks like something where like an airplane would go or something like that. But uh, he was everywhere, uh, and he established churches everywhere. 
um, remarkable when you look at the four journeys of St. Mark. I mean, I'm sorry, St. Paul. So chapter 14 continues uh, with uh, more preaching, more performance of miracles, a uh, greater uh, example by the apostles. Um, and if you could, uh, again, take a picture of uh, this missionary trip so we can track uh, exactly where he's going. Okay, so at Iconium, a division occurred where some sided with St. Paul and Barnabas and others with the Jewish leaders. So when it was going to be violent, um, St. Paul and Barnabas left for Lystra and Derbe. St. Paul there heals a crippled man, and they were about, they actually were so amazed at this wonder that they were going to worship to them. Again, this is the second time we hear about people wanting to worship the apostles, uh, both times, and even St. Paul like ran in the middle of them and said, what are you doing? I'm a man like you. Um, they were about to worship him, but he stops them and gives them a really beautiful speech that you can go back and read in chapter 14. But the Jewish leaders uh, follow them uh, from uh, where they came from. Um, and they stir up the crowds and uh, St. Paul gets stoned and dragged and almost died actually. Uh, the faithful gathered around him and he gets up again. Again, another miracle that the faithful got back together and they surrounded him, prayed over him, and he got up again. So he was healed, um, uh, according to the story. So they return. What's interesting here is they return back to the same place that they were forced to leave previously. They go back and they preach in that same location. It just shows you the courage and the boldness of uh, St. Paul, uh, that he, the same people who followed him from that location and stoned him and he was healed, he goes back to that same place and preaches in that same place uh, in front of everyone. Uh, amazing courage and very uh, inspiring to, to when you read these things, uh, very epic. Um, and he says himself, right, preaching that we must go through many tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about the suffering of uh, St. Paul. So from this point on in the book of Acts, um, although it touches on all the other apostles briefly, but we're mostly going to focus on the labors and efforts of St. Paul the Apostle. We would, you know, not have enough time to talk about the apostles, right? And there were like, you know, the book of Acts only shows and shares with us a few of the apostles and what happened and just some of the stories. The rest of them we have during tradition, like where St. Thomas goes to India and all the other apostles, they go and they do similar works as what we see in the book of Acts. And if you go to these church traditions, they have their own traditions on like what St. Thomas did or what St. Mark did in Alexandria. And so we, we have these beautiful things that stay within us and they're part of the tradition of the church, just like the book of Acts is part of the tradition of the church. We couldn't, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about everything that St. Peter did, about how he was martyred, uh, St. John and St. Mark and all the other apostles, um, or even some of the stories of the disciples of the apostles, right? Like Clement, like the city of San Clemente is named after Clement, uh, St. Ignatius, Polycarp, all those new, uh, you know, the converts, the people who were converted by the apostles and their stories. And the, each one of them alone can be a movie by themselves. I mean, they're epic, inspiring stories. Uh, but let's focus today as much as we can, and I'm not gonna do it justice, and may St. Paul pray for me, because and, and forgive me, because there's no way you can talk about St. Paul if you had your whole life to try to really understand and get a glimpse of what this man 
accomplished um, and who he was, it would, we would fail. But let's at least try to scratch the surface. Some of the virtues of St. Paul, right? There's some of the virtues that we read about uh, and we learn from his epistles and from the books of Acts and from tradition. Um, when you just mention St. Paul's, if you really understand and read some of the things that he did, if you just say St. Paul, automatically you're like uh, energized, right? You, you say, wow, this guy is really inspiring us. And, and uh, he's, he fills you with inspiration and wonder and, and what a human being is capable of with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was a perfect example of love and courage, boldness, like we just talked about. And that wasn't even, that was just the beginning, of, which we'll talk about later in future weeks. Uh, tireless work ethic, um, faith beyond measure, uh, hope and eloquence in his speech, sacrificing uh, more so than, uh, than any of the other apostles, willingness to suffer for Christ and for the church believers. There was no limit to what he was willing to bear for uh, the believers. And he himself accounts, uh, recounts some of the things that he went through. And I'd like to read this and uh, we can kind of go through. And this is just a glimpse of what he, he went through. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in labors more abundant, more abundant, of course, than all the other apostles, more abundant, in stripes above measure. So he was whipped. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, so 39 uh, whippings. Five times he received it from them. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which we just read about. Three times I was shipwrecked. Imagine being shipwrecked on the way to serve God. You're shipwrecked in the middle of the sea at night trying to swim to shore. What kind of thoughts are going to go through your head? With St. Paul, it was faith. A night and a day I have been in the deep. So he spent a day and a half um, in the middle of the sea. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils dangerous. That's what perils mean. In perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In perils and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. On top of that, he has a deep concern for all the churches. When you look at St. Paul, it's obvious from, you know, from point number one that he didn't do it for any reward. And what kind of reward would yield all the things that we just talked about, right? I mean, it's not worth it if he was just seeking a worldly reward or a worldly benefit. His reward and his motivation with no ulterior motive, no hidden agenda is the salvation of souls. The salvation of those around him was his only motive. And he was willing to endure everything to bring back to God what was stolen from God, which are the souls of those of the world. And we read about that. We get a glimpse about that from his epistles. Um, and next week, God willing, we'll try to align his epistles to his um, to the chapters we read uh, to the best we can. But in uh, some of his epistles, he says, 
I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I die daily. We have been comforted by your comfort. His comfort was the comfort of others. It's like he's turning things upside down. We're comforted by when we receive comfort from others. His comfort is when others are comforted. I mean, the only way we can maybe describe that is when you see your uh, parents towards their children, when their children are comforted, maybe if they're sick and they're, they stay up all night putting uh, a cold rag on their, on their forehead and they receive comfort even though they're staying up all night uh, to see that their kids maybe have a little bit of comfort during the, the fever that they're going through. Um, but he felt like that with everybody. His comfort was that others are comforted. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, I receive the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. And if I receive that, then I am strong. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my own brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He struggled that the Jewish people around him were not believing. And he himself said that he would cast himself out of the book of life, similar to what Moses did, right? When Moses said, if you will not forgive your people, then blot me out from the book of life. St. Paul had that same philosophy, that his love for his own countrymen, that he said if he could wish it, that he would wish that he would fall away, that his countrymen uh, that his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters would believe. That is pure motivation, uh, authentic uh, and sincere service towards Christ. St. Paul did it for the love of Christ, very simple, and for the people. Just like Christ suffered all things for, the for his love for us, St. Paul suffered all things for the love of Christ. No one ever grieved for his own suffering as this man, St. Paul, grieved for the sufferings of others. So, you know, if we can grieve, like this is what St. John Chrysostom said about St. Paul, that we grieve for our own suffering. We don't even grieve as much for our own suffering as St. Paul grieved for the sufferings of others. He cared more about others than he did himself. It's difficult to compare St. Paul with any human being in human history. If we try to compare him with kings, you know, his chains were more valuable than the crowns of the kings and the prisons were like his palaces. Um, the prophets, can we compare St. Paul with the prophets of the Old Testament, with Moses, with Elijah? We can't even, with Samuel, we can't compare St. Paul with them. St. Paul is much greater measure uh, of a prophet and an apostle than they were. Uh, they gave the message to those who should have already believed, right? Um, but St. Paul, not only to them as well, but to also to the whole world who were not even believing, who didn't even know of a Moses, who didn't even know of an Old Testament, uh, to pagans, of, uh, to people who had complex uh, pagan theology for thousands of years before St. Paul. Yet he went to them and converted them. It's, this is indeed like, this is prophetic, number one, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, other apostles, can we compare St. Paul with other apostles? We just read how he labored more abundantly than they all. Other saints, 
other saints, like in our church history, we only try to attain a portion of what St. Paul accomplished. What about if we try to compare St. Paul to angels? You know, angels get assigned to a group of people or to a person. He was assigned to the whole earth and not just during his time, but even during our time. Um, but it's not putting down angels, but it's like uh, saying that man can be just like angels, uh, being assigned and to, uh, to work and to labor for God's sake. It shows us what the ability of and the possibilities there are for the human nature to obtain virtue, to obtain greatness in uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Because we got to remember, St. Paul was just a man like any one of us. He struggled just like any of us. But he was able to have great joy on earth. No matter what the pains or no matter what the earth threw at him, he was able to have great joy. And to look at that eternal home, uh, even though he was in prison, he would, that prison was to him like paradise. And to be like angels in purity, in virtue, and in labors. I love this quote by St. John Chrysostom about St. Paul. For surely it is marvelous and unexpected that a word springing from a tongue of clay should defeat death, forgive sins, restore sight to the blind, and to return earth into heaven, and to turn earth into heaven. This makes me marvel at the glory of God. This makes me admire the zeal of St. Paul in receiving such a grace and in preparing his soul for its reception. Because St. Paul prepared himself to receive such a grace of all the things he accomplished. And he prepared himself um, for receiving this grace to do all these amazing things. Um, but we know that, of course, the Holy Spirit was in him working. But he submitted to the Holy Spirit to be used as a tool and as if he was a candle, allowing that candle to be spent and used so that it can give light to the rest of the world. He sacrificed himself like a candle sacrifices itself to give light to those around him. St. Paul was, is an inspiration. You know, you can't say enough about him. He was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, he saw things that were not, and heard things that were not lawful for him to repeat what he saw or heard. Uh, his bandages would heal the sick. Um, he has the privilege of having most of the New Testament books, uh, about 52%, 14 out of 27, uh, attributed to him. Uh, many churches in the world have the blessing of uh, being started by him, and some of them uh, exist today. Um, when we look at St. Paul, as indeed when we look at all the saints, right, it's, it's great that we admire them and honor them as saints, right? And we, our church does that, of course, because we are part of the same church. Uh, church militant, church triumphant. We're still part of the same church, the same church, and we know that death does not conquer the church, uh, but that it's eternal, and our relationships are forever. And so um, we uh, we do honor the saints, but more importantly than that, we should try to follow their footsteps as they themselves followed Christ's footsteps. It encourages us to see what a human being can accomplish with the grace of God. But we have to accept it just like St. Paul accepted it. St. John Chrysostom says we should look not just to the greatness and the glory of the life of virtue, like, like that of the saints, but also to the steadfastness of purpose through which this grace is attained. And to the fact that St. Paul was in no way different from ourselves. St. Paul was a human being just like ourselves, but wow, did he accomplish a lot because he allowed himself to be used as a tool uh, by the Holy Spirit.
and we'll say the Lord's Prayer in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. O Lord, hear us when we say with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one through Christ Jesus our Lord. For that is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Depart in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you.